Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. It's hot in here. You guys need to stop breathing so much hot air. I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, it's good to be with you today. We're going to be, have some time in the Word as we've spent some time singing and giving and worshiping that way and praying. Now we're going to spend some time in the Word. If you have a little one up through grade four, is that right, Sarah? Up through grade four, and you'd like them to be in an age-appropriate service, you can dismiss them right now to the foyer, follow the herd out the door, and make sure you pick them up at the end, all right? For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I remind you that uh, towards the end of the service, you may hear, you may smell some things, some good smells wafting up here. Church would always smell good. I, I think the church, we should like bake bread every morning on Sunday morning, like at 8 a.m. And then when you come in, you smell bread. It'd be kind of like the, you know, the Old Testament time and the showbread, I think. But anyway, the church is going to smell good. So I want to tell you that you're invited to stay afterwards. Uh, we're going to hear from, uh, briefly from the Pierces before they go back on the field. But we'd like to have you stay, come downstairs, and, and we're going to have a carry-in dinner uh, downstairs and, and to... Uh, to have our final fellowship with them for a while, so we invite you to be with them. So if you smell stuff like that, that's what's happening. Plan on staying, okay? God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. That's just my weird sense of humor. I thought that was funny. Uh, conduct in the church, spiritual gifts, particularly the variety of gifts, and we are picking up really right towards the end of chapter 12. If you're new with us there, we've turned our attention to spiritual gifts and we are working our way verse by verse comparing scripture with scripture, which is how we do our study here and in most of our Sunday school classes and, and adult classes, you'll find that same model. We feel that's the way you should study the word and that's the way you come away with the most enriching time in the word. And so that's what we're gonna do. Picking up today in verse 28 of chapter 12. And really it's our fourth outline point. We try to pick up as you work through the word, the outline points of the writer. And I think as in general, we can see as we work through chapter 12, the first part was the test of the spirit. And as you know, if you've been with us, uh, the Apostle Paul had some writing and some communica communication from Corinth as he was gone from there, wondering how you could tell if the Holy Spirit was actually at work or if it was uh, something that was an imposter of some kind, uh, a false gift. And so Paul gave them some tests. And then we moved on in the second outline point, which was really the gifts of the Spirit. Paul gave us nine. It's not an exhaustive list, but it was sufficient for his points. And so he gave some gifts of the Spirit. We went through all of that very extensively. I'm going to call on your knowledge of that later today as we work through this time. So if you were not with us, you can catch that online in the archives. And you can go from really part nine on and you can get that background of all of that. And now, uh, and just last week, we finished up the unity of the Spirit, which a big diversity in the church, lots of things going on, different types of gifts happening and different ministries, different effects outcomes, all of that kind of thing, different gifts, but one spirit guiding them all. So unity of the spirit, we saw a number of examples for that. And now we are going to the variety of the spirit and we're going to see uh, some examples of how these, these spiritual gifts go to work. So look, if you would, First Corinthians chapter 12, we'll read in our study the passage that we're going to, it's under our, under our study today, the thing that we're going to take a look at. And Lord willing, we're going to finish up chapter 12 and all God's people said, amen. All right. Uh, Verse 28, and God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Verse 29, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? Verse 30, all do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret. Do they? 
Verse 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. I was reading this week, as I thought about spiritual gifts and just some examples perhaps of the lesser exalted gifts, if you will, in the church. And this story came to my mind. It's going to be one that's familiar to you. It's about Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary from India. Every night she went to bed, little Amy Carmichael prayed ardently and enthusiastically for God to turn her brown eyes blue as she slept. Like many brown-eyed Irish girls in the 19th century, she adored the typical image of feminine Irish beauty that included blue eyes and white skin. So she prayed fervently, prayed with a hope that seemed only children can muster for God to change the part of her that seemed to be designed incorrectly. She desperately hoped for God's intervention, but it never came. Amy had brown eyes from the day she was born to the day she died, regardless of how much she begged God. He was not moved to effect a change in the design of Amy. However, Amy's faith was not weakened or lessened by God's refusal. Amy still trusted God even if she didn't receive everything she wanted. As she grew older, she began teaching a Sunday morning women's class at a local church uh, who were in need of spiritual direction and guidance. The class eventually grew into be a large part of the congregation called the Welcome Evangelical Church in Belfast. She continued there until she had opportunity to hear Hudson Taylor speak about missions work in China. And though she suffered from various nerve conditions that ill-fitted her for international mission work, she answered the call just the same. After some preparatory time in Japan, it was determined that China was not the direction she was going to go, and so she moved to the southernmost, in southernmost India to serve as a Christian missionary among the people of the country. The missionaries she worked with did everything they could to fit into the culture of which they were becoming a part. Amy reflected once that she now understood why God had let her keep her brown eyes. A blue-eyed missionary would have certainly been an oddity, it never could have really fit in with the people, and she was thankful that God had persisted in his intricate and elegant design of her instead of catering to her wishes, the wishes of a girl who had not yet met her calling. She even darkened her skin with coffee to further her integration and assimilation into the Indian culture. She did all this largely for the children she ministered to in India. It was not uncommon in India at the time for young girls to be given to the local Hindu temple, they would make money for the priests who often sold the young girls as prostitutes to help cover the expenses of the girl and the priest who controlled her. Amy couldn't bear to let that happen, so she devoted herself to rescuing these young girls and housing them in whatever way she could. Soon she'd founded Donovar Fellowship and provided a safe haven for over 1,000 children at a time who might otherwise die or be forced into prostitution or slavery. Given her devotion to pursuing and receiving abandoned children in India, it was no surprise that Amy insisted, quote, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. Amy gave much and loved much because she had been intricately and elegantly designed to serve. And so she shared God's love with people who needed it desperately. She served the children of India for 55 years. She never took a furlough. She died in 1951 at the age of 83, due in part to complications from an earlier injury that she had suffered during her pursuit of ministry. In accordance with her wishes, she was buried in India near the Donovar Fellowship without a gravestone. The children she loved and cared for in India had to do something for the woman they loved and remembered, so they put up a fountain for birds over her grave and inscribed the Hindi word Ama upon it. The word perfectly condensed God's intricate design for Amy as mother. Amy's noted for a number of observations about the uses of spiritual gifts. She wrote, quote, 
It's a safe thing to trust him to fulfill the desire that he creates in you, end quote. Her gifts, obviously, in serving and mercy showing, which we've looked at, have impacted untold tens of thousands by now. Now, I want to draw your attention to something. Here is a gift for a single lady that the Corinthian church would have considered inconsequential because it was all about the big gifts. It was all about the showy gifts. It was all about tongues. It was all about healing. It was all about that. And here's a young woman who, in her foolishness as a child, hoped she could be more like the Irish, but the Lord had made her specifically for a place to minister in gifts that nobody recognized, and she was there for over 55 years, and very few even knew what she was doing other than the local people, but she made a huge difference there. Now, last week, we finished up the Apostle Paul teaching on spiritual gifts as he dealt with the unity of the Spirit. We saw in verses 21 through 27 a number of things that are very important. I'd like you to look back up there just quickly as we review. Paul addressed the pride and arrogance of the church, and this is a continually uh, manifesting problem in the church. Earlier, while he was talking to the church, he was encouraging those who might feel a little depressed because they didn't have the spectacular gifts, and they looked around and saw a whole bunch of people with what appeared to be these great gifts, these upfront gifts, and they were feeling a little inferior. And he did some more encouraging in this section, but he kind of backs into it by turning his attention on those that possess some of the showier gifts. In verse 21, he says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And we saw that the Holy Spirit's principle there was, don't overestimate your importance in the church. You want to make sure that those who didn't have the showy gifts recognize that they were very important. But you also want to tell those who thought they had the showy gifts, uh, be careful that you don't think you're too important. He addresses the eye and the head, and we saw that, and those are the two body parts that really represent what everyone looks at. Uh, they would represent public gifts, whenever they, whatever they may be, whatever form they may take. Whereas the hand and the foot there that Paul talks about, those are two body parts where hardly one ever looks, at least initially, and those would represent perhaps the gifts of serving or, or, he, or, uh, or helping or something like that. So Paul, again, emphasizes that the whole body is necessary by definition of being a body. Now look at verse 22. On the contrary, he says, it's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, he says, are necessary. And we saw that the Holy Spirit's principle there was the parts that don't seem to be too important are indispensable. Now, I, I pointed out to you that Paul does not use the same words about the upfront gifts. Uh, you can do, and I pointed out, you could do without an eye, perhaps. You could do uh, without some other things that were upfront, but it's pretty hard to do without a pancreas. It's hard to do without a liver or without a bladder or some part that's inside. And so that's Paul's point, that those parts that you don't think are that important, they are indispensable to the life of the church. The body can't do without them. That weaker Greek adjective, Paul's probably referring to internal organs, asthenostera, things that are in us that need protection in order to function. Uh, they aren't on the outside. Perhaps their function is a mystery. Paul just says they just seem to be more feeble, but they're not. And that's a misperception. In fact, he says they are necessary. And Ankia, they can't be done without, absolutely required. A very important word there. And then he goes a step further. Look at verse 23. He says, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable on those we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members have become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. So Paul says, you know uh, how to take care of the parts of your body that don't look so good. That's the first part. That's the less honorable parts, the things that you don't particularly want somebody to notice. You know how to dress them nicely. You know how to make them look good. Uh, you know how to do all that, make them look better, hide it, whatever you do, make yourself look better, you know, put yourself together. And then he says, and the less presentable parts, that would probably refer to the private parts, those things that are not supposed to be seen. Perhaps the word indecent fits there pretty well. 
so Paul is speaking about clothing here. There's some parts of the church, uh, parts of the body thought to be less honorable. That's the physical body. There's parts of the body that seem less presentable, the physical body. We clothe them correctly and in a seemly fashion and give them special honor. And that verb treat, we treat them, that's the used of clothing a lot in the New Testament. So in the same way our less presentable parts we treat with special modesty, in the same way we, we present our less honorable parts to look nice, more nice, he's like, you should be able to connect the dots in your own wardrobe. Even you compensate, he says, for the members of your body that aren't supposed to be on the outside. Uh, nobody really notices what's going on. Uh, for everybody to see. Those, you know how to do that. And the general principle then was this, the parts of the body of Christ nobody sees need to be given special honor or attention just like the people do with those parts of their physical body. And so he's just saying, listen, God's designed the body that way. And, and he's designed your understanding, your perception that way. There should be gratitude. There should be thankfulness. There should be respect. There should be gracious attention. And then Paul finishes up that thought with, with just really the obvious. Look at verse 24. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. In, in other words, it's part of the course of normal behavior. The upfront gifts are going to be noticed and they have attention brought to them. And that's just how that works. But God has so composed, listen, so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. And again, we saw that next principle, very important. God is actively involved in making sure that every gift is recognized. And then we went through the things that are really important and kind of that kingdom upside down thing, see? And so uh, we understand that. We, we looked at a number of passages from the New Testament that affirm how God recognizes and honors right attitudes and right service. We saw if you're going to be first, you've got to be last. If you're going to be a le the, the leader, you're going to be servant of all. Those kinds of things, God has already designed it that way. And so we understand that it's that kingdom that's upside down that we don't recognize necessarily. God has designed it. He says the church is supposed to be that way. Understand that these things that seem less important are very important. They are indispensable to the workings of the body. Now, he's personally placed all the gifts in the body just as he desired for his own purpose. He's personally designed the body of Christ to, to evaluate itself correctly, provide for the care and the thankfulness and the honor for every gift and esteem each gift as he would esteem it. And as each gift is important. Each gift will be rewarded for faithfulness. And we saw last, last time we went through a Bema Seat re review so that you could see uh, you know, how God uh, evaluates the believer and what that's going to look like uh, at a future Bema Seat judgment time. Now look at verse 26. Paul says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Verse 27, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You are a body, he says. If one part of the body is affected in some way, every part is affected, and you should know that. Paul says this is just obvious. If you understand the physical body as the example of how the spiritual body of the church works, then you'll know if you're injured, if something's hurt, if something's having a hard time, that should affect everybody, and if something is exalted, that also exalts everybody. Now, let's look at verse 28, if you would. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Stop right there. That is the Greek verb that appointed, has appointed, at theto. You can look at it this way. God has set it. God has fixed it. God has established it. Once again, the sovereignty of God is in view here. And Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit, and the verb is eris, middle, indicative. So here's how you can understand it. And it goes perfectly with the way we've understood all the rest of them that do with God, how to do with God's sovereignty in the church. Eris since, that is the action occurred at a point in time in the past. The middle voice, God has done it personally and is participating in the outcome. And then the indicative mood, that's the mood of reality. So how's, here's how we can look at it. At a time in the past, God established what was needed in the church. 
he's still currently involved in that activity. That's pretty important, isn't it? Considering the life of the church, 2,000 plus years of the church functioning, God was involved in the past. He established what was needed in the church. He has still been doing that all the way along. He's currently involved in that activity. And what he has established in the past and involved in now is the current reality of the church. So back in verse 11, remember this. Verse 11, look back there. Just flip back to verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. There's the first time we saw kind of a shift there from what the reality of the church was to who was actually involved in making this happen. You know, people in, in Corinth and even in the modern church waiting for gifts to come, praying for certain gifts, hoping they had the, the big showy gifts. And I told you, I made the example, it's always a movement of showy gifts, right? It's always a faith movement. It's always a, you know, it's always a healing movement. It's always something like that. It's never a helps movement, you know, or a giving movement, you know, something below the radar. You know, it, so they're always looking for that. And we saw right away in verse 11, the first idea that God is directly involved with this. He says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Various gifts we saw, various ministries, various effects. It's the one God who gives them all. And the principle is that God deals with us as individuals. And we cross-referenced with Romans 12, and we saw that you know, God gives in, in relation to the faith that he gives, and that grace involved in that faith-giving then produced this gift that's working inside the church. So God's directly involved with us as individuals. So there's a sovereignty in God's dealing with you personally. Back at verse 18, look there, just skip up to verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. Again, and that principle we saw, God is directly and actively involved in crafting Christ's body, the church. He's doing it. He's put it exactly together as he wished. And then we looked at verse 24, just a minute ago. God has so composed the body, right? And that principle was God is actively involved in making sure that every gift is recognized, even those that are not as, don't appear to be as important. And so we're to do that too. And then we move up then to verse 28, and God has appointed in the church then, this is the fourth time that we've talked about sovereignty now in this section of, of, the, of the scripture. It appears that principle nine there is just this, and it's building on Paul's previous statements. What God has established in the past and is involved in now, that's the current reality of the church. God has already set this up. That's a very important focus of words. In the church, as he says. He says, and God has appointed in the church. It's very often referred to as a local body. It's certainly talking about the local body at Corinth, but it also taking in every local body of the redeemed. God is involved in all of the church. Wherever they are, whatever epoch they're in, whatever season they're in, that is his involvement. The church of the redeemed, God is appointing in the church those who are going to serve. And then Paul proceeds to list some of the parts of the body of Christ. Now remember, he has already done so. so he continues to act on his choices, and it is the present reality of every, of every church. He's done it in the past. He's currently working on it now. It's the present reality. So have that in mind as we look at these gifts, okay? Already established. Now, look at the next part of this very rich verse. We'll skip up to verse 28. First apostles... Second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Now we're going to work our way through those. Not all of them, because some of them we've covered, so I'll refer you back in some of those things. But here's the next principle. If you're taking notes, this is the next one. This is so specific. And I think it's very important. We've said this over and over again because it just seems so obvious. Uh, because Paul continues to repeat it, so will we. Here it is. People don't choose these gifts. God appoints them in the church. Okay? People are not choosing these gifts. 
Okay, God is actively involved in making sure every gift's recognized. God is, uh, is dealing with us as individuals. God is actively crafting Christ's body of the church. And what God has established in the past, he's involved in now, and that's the current reality. And so just obviously, people don't choose these gifts. God appoints them. Paul says first, second, and third. And then he stops numbering. And so I don't think we can press the order as if that order somehow is exhaustive because none of the other gifts are numbered. And it appears that he's listing some offices at the beginning that would express some of the gifts. You get that? So he's talking about offices. We see that. But those offices would express some of the gifts. And then he moves on and expresses the gifts themselves. Okay, so that's kind of the idea of Paul's thought and flow there as we look at it. And I think we can get some clarity by looking at another list from Paul. So you've got that down. Here's a, here's a great illustration. It's a parallel passage. It has some differences and has some exclusions and then fills some, in gap, some gaps in. So we have this great understanding. In Ephesians 4.11, and, and I've, I've taught this passage to you before, so you're familiar with it, and I'm sure you've read it many times. But here it is. And he gave some. So again, God is in the process of doing this. He's done it in the past. It's, it's, uh, he's active in it now. It's the present reality of the church. Same types of wording where it says God has appointed. Here it says he gave some, and then he starts, he says, as apostles and some as prophets. Now, both of those are this, in the same list that we saw in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 12, 28, right? Those are the first two words we saw. So he's tracking right along in the same thought as he gives this, uh, these um, thoughts to the church of Ephesus. And then we get to this one. He says, and some as, what's the next one? evangelists okay now this is a word that describes the office of one who brings good tidings uh, which is is in the new testament was a person who was not an apostle but went around proclaiming the gospel now to illustrate that in acts 21 we have the record of paul he's sailing from miletus and he's going to make several stops and then he comes to caesarea and we see the passage right there at the bottom in acts 21 8 he says this on the next day we left and came to caesarea and entering the house of philip now catch this what else does he call him the evangelist, okay, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. So once again, we see the illustration of what Paul's talking about in, in uh, Ephesus. So Philip's an evangelist, okay? Let's just kind of parse that out a little bit, if you will. Philip is one of the seven. Now, what's that mean? That just means that uh, as you think about Acts chapter 6 and the servants of the church, the precursors of the office of deacon, back in Acts chapter 6, these guys, these seven guys were appointed by the congregation because there was some, there was some thing, upsetting things going on and some money needed to be distributed and, and some servant stuff needed to be done and waiting of tables. And uh, the apostles were like, we can't spend our time waiting tables. We need to spend our time in prayer and in the word. And so we're going to ask the church to appoint seven guys who have a good reputation. Now, these are godly guys, not guys that perhaps are the most liked necessarily. They're not the guys who, you know, they own a business and so they obviously fit the, the profile. There's a whole lot of uh, structure that goes in and in 1 Timothy 3, we can see what has to be in place. But we get a few things here, but right here we see that they were seven men chosen by the congregation for their good reputation, and because they were, what's it say? Because they were full, of, well, in Acts 6 you don't see that, but they were full of the Spirit, okay? That sounds familiar. And they had wisdom. And so we find out here that along with having a good reputation, being filled with the Spirit, so that Spirit-controlled, and having wisdom, Philip was, was also an evangelist. He was always inviting people to profess faith in Christ. And that, of course, is the job of every believer, isn't it? That's the job of every believer. A reproducing disciple is a mature disciple. Okay, so if you're reproducing yourself, if you're giving out the gospel, you are a mature disciple. If you're not, you're not, okay? It's just kind of how that works. But this is the job of every believer, but some receive this as a special empowerment, and Philip was one of those guys. Now, Timothy, here's a great illustration here, 
It talks about the same thing. Timothy, this is Paul's disciple and a pastor himself, is told by Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says this, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, and then catch this, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, that would, I think, presuppose that Timothy didn't appear to have the gift of evangelism, okay? He doesn't have the gift of evangelism, so he does the work of an evangelist. I fall into that category. There's some other pastors who fall into that category. I, I, have, I have the gift of teaching. It's one of those things that the Lord has given to me, but the gift of evangelism is, isn't one of them. But I don't get off the hook just because I don't have it. I still, as I see Paul's words to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, then that becomes my job too. And even in the pulpit, that's something that I have to do. Do the work of an evangelist, and he says, fulfill your ministry. So Paul reminds him to do the work anyway. So obviously there's an office there, an evangelist. There's somebody who, like Philip, who gives out the good news. It's part of uh, what happened in the early church. Now, Paul continues in Ephesians 4.11. So we just flip back over there again, that parallel passage here. Uh, he says this, and some as pastors and teachers, and we, have, uh, and we don't have pastors listed in 1 Corinthians 12 28, but we do have teachers listed there. But Paul says, all these gifts, all these offices, all these equippings are given, and then look at verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So they're given to the church, those offices, with the corresponding gifts, for what reason? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure and stature which belong to the fullness of Christ. So once again, we have the same sketch, don't we? We have uh, these offices given with the corresponding gifts, and then we have them given to bring the church to maturity, to equip it for the work of service, to the building up the body of Christ, and the more they become, the more they become mature, then the more the church itself which is a whole bunch of different people united together as one spiritual body, the body of Christ, begin to resemble Christ himself. See, Now, he doesn't mention any other gift in the beginning there, does he? Like Paul does in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. He just says those. But then he says in verse 16, and this is pretty interesting, he says this, from whom the whole body, now once again, what body is that? That's the body of Christ, but calling on the physical body, so you remember what that looks like, okay? From the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? All the inside parts, all the immodest parts, all the improper parts, all the outside parts, all the parts, as they grow in maturity, because the offices that were given with the corresponding gifts, that body begins to take on the look of Christ, and that whole body then, as it functions, becomes more and more apparent that it is Christ working in the world, okay? So all, and here's the, here's the words, fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies. Once again, you've got the connecting tissue and the ligaments and, and all the things that are supposed to go on there. And they're all working together, each individual part, working together as a whole, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And once again, spiritual gifts are given for the mutual benefit of the church and it also makes the holy spirit appear to be working in that body okay but it's for the common good first isn't it so the church as it ministers to itself as it grows up in in uh, maturity it resembles christ and then it begins to all those things are working so the gifts and the working for the common good are implied by paul see as the proper functioning of a healthy body so it, it's an important parallel passage and it shows us that paul sometimes mentions the gift and sometimes he mentions the office, 
that would demonstrate the functioning gift. And sometimes he just says joint and marrow, joints and, and ligaments, everything that is supplied by the proper movement. But he's talking about the exact same thing, isn't he? That we're part of Christ's body and there's all kinds of parts and some parts are covered so they can function and some parts are out in the open and some parts are immodest and some parts are, are, are less calmly or however you're, you're, the authorized, I think, says less calmly. So whatever it is, see, that's how it's supposed to work. And so it's a great parallel passage that it excludes some things but implies, hey, this still works this way, okay? So back to 1 Corinthians 12, 28. So what Paul says then, and God has appointed... In the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues, along with some other things that we'll point out. Again, it's likely to be significant, I want to point this out, that he lists various kinds of tongues last. Okay? The very thing that we're going to see in chapter 13 and 14 that they valued so highly and that we find in the charismatic church now is valued so highly, okay? He lists it last. Now, he starts one, two, three, and then he doesn't number anything else, but then he puts it right smack on the end. I don't think that's an accident. Not that it wasn't important, not that it didn't have a function, but Paul just sticks it right there. Now, let's look at the gifts, we've, and we've commented on them already, so we'll just do it briefly. We see first, we see first apostles, okay? First apostles. Now, this is would seem to refer to the official office with the accompanying gifts, and those gifts would be signs and wonders, okay? That would confirm the message and the messenger. And we went through all that already, didn't we? Uh, these would be the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus and had been with him with the addition of Matthias for Judas. Paul was added to this number, and he was called the apostle to the Gentiles, and he too saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and was with him and instructed by him. So, this is a unique position given to the church with a temporary sign gifts, and it didn't continue. Now, we've talked about all that, but I'll give you another passage we didn't look at before. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 can kind of help you uh, flush that out and make sure you've got that foundation there in your mind. Okay? So, verse 19 says this. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. So, we're speaking to believers. That's the audience. And they are growing in maturity. You're not strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. So you're part of that great big body of Christ who's come to faith, okay? And are of God's household. So even more personal, coming from outside and just getting right in tight, okay? Verse 20, having been built on, here's the key word, okay? What does it say? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What's that mean? Well, if you look at your house, all right, you, you may have a lovely house as you walk in and it may be very comfortable, but it is built on what? On a foundation. Now, for years, I helped my dad build custom homes. That's not that pretty. And it's a mess, actually. It's stuff everywhere. But once they get all done, you've got a very solid footing. And then what happens? Then it gets framed out, and you start roughing everything in. Pipes come in, and you, you put the electrical in, and you cover up the walls with, with uh, um, uh, drywall, and you paint them. And all of a sudden, the house starts looking really nice. And that's what he's talking about. You're, you're in this household, okay? And it's, it's beginning to be furnished. And we've looked at other verses that talk about that. But it's built on what? Back... It was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, wasn't it? So, that's what Paul's talking about. He says, listen, you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, back in, in ancient days, they would lay that big heavy cornerstone and then would go off of that and make it square, and that would be where we would find you know, weight-bearing capability. So, he says this, verse 31, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also were built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. So instead of looking at a body, 
What's he looking at? He's looking at a house. And at a, as a house, you're part of that house somewhere. You're, you're this stud or that stud if you're men, okay? And you're that lovely chandelier if you're a lady or whatever it is, okay? That just came to me and I probably shouldn't have said it. But the bottom line is this, okay? The foundation then was the authoritative teaching that the, the established the church and gave her the doctrine that she needed before the New Testament was complete. So it was there. It laid the foundation, okay? Uh, the word means messenger or one who was sent. That's that word, uh, apostle. In a sense, there's a general application of that word to every believer. Everyone is a messenger, are we not? We, we have a message to give, and if you're, if you're a, 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 a disciple that is mature, you are giving out that message. You're reproducing yourself, okay? But, but the clear teaching of the New Testament indicates that those who laid the foundation of the church were individuals that were qualified, as we said above. They were, uh, that's an official office. They had the accompanying signs and wonders to verify the message, to verify the messenger, we know who they were. They were with Jesus. Uh, and when Judas showed himself to be a betrayer, Matthias took his place. And Paul, as well, was chosen by the Lord himself. So these are guys official. They are official uh, offices with the accompanying gifts. Those were temporary sign gifts. They confirmed what was supposed to be confirmed. They were assigned to the Jews, all that kind of stuff. But they didn't continue. Second, prophets, we see. Secondly, prophets. Oh, I went too far. All right, prophets. Now, because Ephesians, again, 19 through 22, indicates they're part of the foundation, we have to separate what we understand about the gift of prophecy that we see that's common and continues from this official office as a prophet. And we'll just kind of uh, make sure that that's clear here in just a couple minutes, and I think you can see this. But they were part of the foundation, so saying argument applies. You had the apostles, you got the prophets. And what we had was, what was going on in the church then, is that we had men uh, that would function in the church before the completion of the New Testament, who proclaimed what the apostles were saying, and we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 4, 32, 14, 32, there was some accountability about what they said. So the apostles said and laid down this foundation, and the, the prophets were doing that too, and there was accountability there. The, the prophets uh, were accountable to what the apostles had said and couldn't say anything different from that, but they were functioning in the church. They were proclaiming publicly the truth of God, spirit-inspired speech. Now, that is where it shares the gift of prophecy with this modern gift that we understand today, uh, a, a, a forth telling, if you will. But in the New Testament model, we see, especially in Ephesians, where Paul says it was the foundation of the prophets, the foundation of particularly the, the apostles, we see that referred to as in the past. Now, Paul could be referring to prophets from the Old Testament, who would certainly qualify in this same idea of, of a gift that's no longer here with us, or the New Testament types of prophets who functioned in the church before the completion of the New Testament. But either way, we see that this gift was functioning, and it also uh, provided some help to the church before the completion of the New Testament. Now, we also see in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, which if you read this, you might think, oh man, is that still going on? Now this is Agabus, remember Agabus? And he comes and he gives a prophecy. What does he say? There's going to be this huge famine. So we had direct revelation from God there too, didn't we? That here's this prophet functioning in the early church before we have the completed gospel, the completed canon. And so functioning along with the apostles and some direct revelations given, the Lord's letting his people know what's going to happen. And so they're functioning there. And so it's a speaking gift, uh, men who helped the local church until it was established. And this office does not appear to have been continued. Now, the gift of prophecy, we see a spiritual gift of prophecy given, and we talked about that model and what that looks like, and we still see that today, perhaps some of what goes on in the pulpit today of a uh, forth-telling of what uh, the Lord has already said. But this office here appears to be a separate office. Now, we see third teachers. 
Uh, teaching that gift, uh, the ability to teach the Word of God, help the hearers understand the Scriptures as the author intended. We looked at that already. That is a permanent edifying gifts, uh, permanent edifying gift. Ephesians includes pastors and teachers. Paul just uses teachers here. It certainly must be included in the gift of the elder, uh, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. He has to be apt to teach, but it doesn't only have the elder in mind. It's anyone uh, who could have this gift. Of course, ladies, of course, definitely have this gift. They just can't do it in the open church body uh, to men, but we, and we'll look at that more carefully as we get on into it. But the fact of the matter is, this is a continuing gift, a permanent edifying gift. And then he moves on and he says, then miracles, he says, and gifts of healing, gifts of helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Now from Paul's, uh, from this point, Paul speaks of gifts then, rather than people who exercise them. As he looks at apostles, prophets, and teachers, he could be speaking of the office that's functioning in the church with the corresponding gifts. As he moves on here, he's just looking at the gifts. And I'm going to refer you back right at this point to our original study from part nine and following. And if you want a background on the permanent edifying gifts and the temporary sign gifts and how we divided those out, okay? Uh, because that's a long study in and of itself. And that, those gifts are broken down further by Peter into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And we, I gave you all that entire outline, and you can get that uh, again if you'd like it. And we won't go through that again today. We've laid that foundation. But I, I think Paul's point here is uh, the amazing amount of diversity that was still a part of the vibrant life of the church. And, and each gift in the Corinthian church and each permanent edifying gift today, though similar in definition, is found in the wonderful diversity in the ministries and the outcomes. Okay, so Paul's just, he's taking kind of a cross-section. He says, man, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this Corinthian church, and they're all marvelous, and they all display this diversity that is part of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the body to make sure it's taken care of. So we're not, we're not uh, saying, okay, gifts of healing are still for today and, and all that kind of stuff and tongues and miracles. I'm just saying Paul just takes the cross section and says these are some of the gifts. They were at work, and this is a, just a wonderful example of God doing all of these things. He wants to recognize God's sovereignty in all this diversity. Now look at verse 29. He says this, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles. All do not have the gifts of healing. All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And what's the implied answer to all of that? No, of course they don't. Not all people are that way. And it's an important principle again, it's gonna come back uh, that Paul wants to make sure is clear. If the church was set up like you wanted it to be, what, what a mess. That would be, okay? If everybody was a prophet, if everybody was a teacher, and once again, I think it's important that Paul doesn't name every gift, does he? But he just names the ones that are up front, doesn't he? Because those are the ones that they thought were, that, were super great. Those are the ones they were magnifying. I mean, if you're a prophet, you're magnified. If you're an apostle, you're magnified. If you're a teacher, right? If you work miracles, that's a great gift. You definitely want the gift of miracles. I'm waiting on the Lord to give me the gift of miracles, okay? That's what they would say, all right? You know, how about, I'm waiting on the Lord to give me healing for the bless, to bless the church, okay? I'm sorry, that's, that's not how it works. Paul says, you don't all have that, and that's not how it works in the church. If that was how it was, it'd be a huge mess. Just the upfront gifts. Just the face and some ears and, uh, and some eyes, and that's it, okay? No. They all don't do that. It'd be a mess if it was like that. All ears, all eyes, all tongues, all spectacular gifts. That's not how it is. You don't have anything to seek for. You don't have anything to wait for. You don't have any say in the distribution period because God has appointed to the church these things. He's specifically involved in it. And we understand how the verb is set up. It's something God has already done. He's established it. God has already set it up just as he desired for his own purpose, remember? For his own glory to show the church is, is alive and the proper picture of Jesus' Jesus's physical body. 
functioning as it should. So that's, that's what we have, not somebody waiting on some spectacular gift. God has called some of you to be teachers. God has called some of you to, with the gift of helps. He's called some of you and given you the gift of the word of knowledge. He's, he's called some of you with the gift of administration. He's gives some of you the gift of mercy showing and the gift of giving and the gift of discernment and the gift of service and the gift of faith. And, and you know, I'm just naming some of those things that we've described, okay, that are still active in the church. You are the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears and the internal parts and the immodest parts and all those kind of things, the unseen parts. It's all him. It's all sovereign. It's all done. And it's for the common good. That's Paul's point. And then Paul says this, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. Now, charismatic movement will say, right there, see? We're supposed to want the greater gifts. Okay, now that either Paul contradicts himself or he's making a point here, and I think it's the second one, okay? Is Paul going to go through all this and say, you know, God's sovereign in all this, he's, he's specifically involved in the church, he places them just as he wants, and then go back and tell the church, but just, just desire the greater gifts. What's he, really, what's he saying? Listen, God's sovereign in all this, okay? And some of you are standing around expounding on how great the showy gifts are. That's the problem in the church, isn't it? I mean, everybody wants to be an eye, and everybody wants to be an ear, and nobody wants to be a hand or a foot, or the immodest parts, or the parts you don't see, or whatever. Paul says, like, listen, you're being fooled. Some of you are being, you're, you're expounding on how great the showy gifts are, and some of you are being fooled by imitation gifts that aren't even real. Up until now, many of you thought that the showy gifts are all that is needed in the church. I've made it clear to you, Paul says, the ones that are the greater ones are the ones you don't even see. They're the imperative ones. So, change your thinking. The gifts you think are great aren't great. So which ones is he actually telling them to think about? Not the ones they've been thinking about, the ones that he's already said they're really great. Earnestly desire. Present active imperative. It's a Paul's giving a command. By implication, he's saying this. Stop chasing after your pride and arrogance. Okay, present active imperative. This is not an option for you. This is what I'm telling you to do, Paul says. Stop chasing after pride and arrogance. And implicitly, he's saying, be zealous in your desire for the correct gifts. God's sovereign. He's given to the church what she needs. Get your focus off the foolish things and onto the right things, God's diversity and unity in Christ's body. And there's no way to misuse the, that verse like the Pentecostals do when they say, you know, see, we have, we have to chase after the greater gifts. See, that the greater gifts that they're thinking about is exactly the error that the Corinthian church was in. Okay? I'm going to wait around. I'm going to wait around for these heal, the gift of healing. I'm going to wait around for the gift of tongues. I'm going to wait till the Lord gives me this in this second work of his spirit so I can bless the church. That isn't how it's supposed to be, Paul says. And there's no way that you can misuse it. In context with Paul's correcting and admonition in the last 30 verses, he's simply correcting their evaluation of what's great. And, and in case you're wondering about that, that goes very well with 1 Corinthians 14, 12, which we're going to see in a little bit. So also you, since you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. In other words, instead of thinking that you just have to have these great showy gifts, if you really are concerned about the church, you know, those gifts of helps, gift of encouragement, gift of service, you're going to edify the church. You're going to bless the church. You're encouraging them. Correct your thinking, Paul says. Focus on what's important, what this whole thing of spiritual giftedness is all about, as Ephesians 4.11 and following says. 
the equipping of the church so that it can function like it's supposed to. Every joint supplies what it's supposed to. Every, every uh, part provides what it's supposed to. And it grows up and it looks like Christ and it ministers to itself. See? And then Paul concludes this section with this, with this statement. And, and really that's the bridge to his next focus, he says. He says, and I show you a still more excellent way. What was the way they were doing it? No unity, no sense of diversity. Everybody's seeking the same gift. I want the great showy gift. I just want to be a face. I want to be a, a tongue. I want to be a, an ear, whatever. No sense of sovereignty. I, I can, you know, I'm just going to wait for what I want. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not willing to accept God's path. You know, the opposite of Amy Carmichael. You know, okay, this is what God wants. He's crafting me. He crafted my body uniquely, and then he crafted the ministry inside of me, the desire uniquely for this service ministry of 55 years in India. See, they didn't have that. So Paul says, I'm showing you an excellent way, unity, diversity, sovereignty, harmony. That's how it's supposed to look. And I'm trying to show you a more excellent way, so I'm not done yet. I'm going to show you that the path of all this whole plan of the church, ministering for the common good, is done in the path of love, see, and that's the bridge to 1 Corinthians 13. I've shown you what you were doing wrong. You don't have any unity. You don't have any diversity. You're all seeking the same gift. No sense of sovereignty. You think you have control over this. You're waiting for these certain things. Not willing to accept God's plan. Listen, I've shown you a lot better way. Unity, diversity, sovereignty, harmony. And I'm going to show you even better way, this path of love, which all these things are going to find minister appropriately to each other inside this path of love. And that's where we're going to go next time, Lord willing. All right? Next week, Father's Day, right? Father's Day, next week, we're going to be talking to the dads. So we'll have a great time with that. And then we'll be back uh, next time together with me. We'll be back, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All right, let's uh, pray, if you will. And we, we'll move on to our announcements. And then we've got some fun stuff after that. All right, bow with me in prayer, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for just a great opportunity to be together. Um, certainly, we enjoy the fellowship uh, the encouragement. We enjoy working together as a body, having our joints and all that supply, everything that's needed. Many are doing that downstairs right now, and they are uh, plugged in somewhere. They're doing a part that, of the body perhaps that doesn't appear to be that fun, maybe not that nice, maybe that, not that calmly, and yet it's imperative. Without it, we can't function. Somebody did it this week when they came and they cleaned the church, and they um, gave themselves, and they made it look wonderful, and it didn't seem to be that important maybe to other people, and yet it was imperative. And we have people who are serving uh, throughout the week and ministering to the needs of other people, and, and yet it doesn't seem to be in the radar and nobody sees it. And yet without it, we don't function. We're not taking care of the needs of one another. And all the one another's that are being done out there with the spiritual gifts that are given are those imperative things that the church can't function without. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you also for those who have some of the upfront gifts, those who teach and are able to explain with knowledge the, the words that are there to make the meanings clear, to make the reasons why they're there clear, and those with wisdom that can make that application with that knowledge to say, and this is what you should do, and those with discernment to know what to do and when to do it and can say that, and Lord, those with the gift of faith who, who initially express that in prayer because they know uh, exactly from your word what you want and then can express it perhaps uh, vocally as they see the opportunity to encourage others. Lord, just so many things. So even the gifts that are similar amongst people are different in their expression because of the way uh, by faith you've given to each one. A different gift, a different ministry, and a different outcome. 
and we work together. Lord, help us to not have to schedule so much because so many are not doing what they need to do, but help them to find their place so that we can see all these things taken care of and the body begins to function as it should and it's apparent the Holy Spirit is working here and the needs are being met wherever they are because this is how you designed us. You designed us to be a healthy body. And Lord, I pray that it will be just that. Thank you for all that are working and doing these things. I pray that you'll help us to do, as Paul says to 1 Thessalonians, all the more. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.